my name's Marshall if I haven't met you and my name is still Marshall if I haven't met you to steal a joke from Kinsey. Um, let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you uh, for your word that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it cuts through to our spirit um, and marrow, uh, that by it you encourage us and rebuke us and you teach us. And we pray that you would do all those things in our hearts today and that we would have hearts that listen to you. Amen. It was October 20th, 2002. It was a cold, windy morning in Beijing and about the 35k mark of the Beijing Marathon, I hit what runners call the wall. There are a few runners in this room, so you'll be able to relate to that. My friend Matt and I were running our first marathon and uh, I was dead, let me tell you. I didn't know how I was going to run the next 100 metres let alone the seven Ks that I still had to go in the race. The only thing that kept me going and stopping me from falling in a quivering heap by the side of the road was my friend Matt uh, praying, urging me on, cajoling me. At one point, when we were going up a hill, he actually took my hand and virtually pulled me up the hill. Pathetic, isn't it? But I made it and I was totally reliant on Matt to get me over that finish line. It was like I fed off his strength and support during those last few Ks. I believe this is a vision of Ivan running his first marathon this, this year. That's what he'll be like. In today's passage from John chapter 15, Jesus uses the picture of a vine and its branches to show us how reliant on Jesus we are. As believers... We are dependent on him for our very life. And we'll see today that it's only by remaining in him that we are able to bear fruit in our lives. Our passage is divided into basically two sections, but you'll see uh, on your outline, you might like to follow along with that, that they're actually four points and they represent kind of four divisions in our, in our passage. But they're two major sections. In verses 1 to 8... Jesus gives us his word picture of a vine and the branches to illustrate our relationship with him. And then in, chapter, in verses 9 to 17, he unpacks that picture and explains what it means to remain in him and bear fruit. So, first point. Jesus starts out in verse 1 by declaring that he is the true vine and my father is the gardener. Now, as he said these words, everyone around him would have recognised, they would have made the connection with the idea of a vine in the Old Testament. They're all Jews, they're all familiar with their Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. Look at me with one of those references um, from the Old Testament, from Psalm 80, and it'll all be up on the screen. Psalm 80 says, You transplanted a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Then down to verse 16, Your vine is cut down, 
it is burnt with fire. At your rebuke, the people perish. Israel is described as a vine that God lovingly tended. But then, as we see in this psalm, something goes wrong and the vine is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, in other places in the Old Testament, we're told what it is that goes wrong, and that is that Israel fails to bear fruit and becomes useless. So God cuts it off and throws it into the fire. Jesus says he is the true vine. He is saying that he is the true Israel. Jesus has done what the nation of Israel could not do. He bears fruit for God. And in a moment we'll look at what that means. He is the new Israel, the one man who faithfully obeys God. But he is more than that because Jesus is also the source of us bearing fruit. Have a look with me at verse 4. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So Jesus says that we are the branches. We are connected to the vine and we cannot bear fruit unless we remain in Jesus, unless we stay connected with him. So what does that mean? What does it mean to remain in Jesus? Think of a relationship. You, you may or may not know anything about uh, vines um, and, and growing grapes. It doesn't matter. But think of a relationship between a branch uh, and a trunk of any plant. Uh, the, the, the branch is, is the centre um, of the life of, of the tree or vine or whatever it is. Um, the branch has no life without being connected to the vine. The vine is the life source for the whole plant. And a, a branch has to be inseparably connected to the vine or else it dies straight away. It cannot survive on its own. Um, now, I, I've, I've shared before that I grew up on a sheep farm. And uh, the month of August on a sheep farm is very important because it's lambing time. Uh, when the ewes have their lambs and uh, it, it's, a, it's a very busy time for, for the farmer. Uh, Dad, my brother and I would spend many hours in the freezing cold going around in the, in the truck or on motorbikes or walking, um, checking on the, the lambing ewes and, making, and, and reuniting stray lambs with their mothers because that used to happen often. Sheep are very stupid animals and it really doesn't take very much at all for a ewe to forget that she's had a couple of lambs and wander away. Uh, and before you know it, the lambs are stranded. We had uh, a window, unless we found them within a window of an hour or two, those lambs would have no hope of surviving uh, because they are extremely dependent on their mother. They are extremely vulnerable. They rely on her totally for them to survive. And that's like us with Jesus. We have no spiritual life of our own. We are totally dependent on him. The ability for us to bear fruit comes totally from Jesus, the vine. He's our life source. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Marshall, I get it. It's about depending on Jesus. But, but what does that actually look like practically? Hold on to that thought because in our second section in verses 5 to 8, that will help to answer the question. So looking at number two in our, uh, in, our, in our bulletin, Jesus continues the theme in verses five to eight 
of bearing fruit by remaining in him. And he gives us a clue about what that means, um, how we are to remain in him. We are to hear Jesus' words and respond back to him with words of our own in prayer. Have a look with me in verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done to you. It's Jesus' words, the words of the gospel, that saves us. By hearing of what he did on the cross, hearing how he came to earth to die for our sins and that we are to put our trust in him and it's his words that we are to live by day by day, moment by moment. His teaching, his commandments, they draw us to himself. They remind us of who he is. They call us to turn away from our sins, what we did earlier in the service, and to follow him as our king. And Jesus talks about the effect of his word back in verse 3. Have a look on the screen. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you, says Jesus. Being clean is the idea of being forgiven, forgiven for our sins. Again, Jesus' words did that for his disciples and he does that for us by causing us to trust in what he did on the cross to take away our sins with his blood by dying for us. It's not just a matter of hearing words from Jesus because back, in, back to verse 7, he says that we need to remain in them. We need to remain in those words. It's a matter of dwelling on them taking them to heart, soaking them in, allowing them to change us. And then, as we'll see in a moment, we need to act on those words. Then in the second half of verse 7, it tells us what the result will be if his words remain in us. Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. So we hear words from God and then we respond by using our own words back, by talking back to God in prayer. Jesus' words lead to our own words expressing our dependence on him. And it's a big promise that Jesus makes here, isn't it? It's a bold promise. Whatever you ask will be given to you. Now, what's that mean? It doesn't mean that I ask for a Ferrari and then when I get back home I can expect it to be in my driveway. It doesn't mean that I ask for silly, selfish things and expect them to be given to me. It doesn't mean that we name it and claim it, that we demand that God give us whatever comes into our head. Asking God and receiving happens if his words remain in us. That means that if you are living in God's word, it will shape the way you think and it will shape the way that we pray. The things that, we'll, that you will ask God for are things like praying for the ability to love him more, praying for other people uh, for their own good, praying that we might serve him better, praying for others to come to know Jesus these are all things after God's own heart and he, he is waiting for us to ask them and he is delighting to give those things to us. 
So as we remain in Jesus' words, that these words, as we remain in Jesus' words, become a two two way thing. We receive them, we dwell in them, we remain in those words, and then we speak our own words back to Him in the context of a trusting, loving relationship. Words express our relationship, a living, intimate relationship with Jesus. In my relationship with my wife, Julie, words are central to to, um, how we relate together. Of course, it's not the only aspect of our relationship, but but it's crucial to it. In the way that I listen to Jesus... Sorry, Jesus, Julie... There is a a distinction. (laughs) I write write J in my notes. (laughs) So the the way I listen to Julie, um, the way, in a sense, her words remain in me because I treat what she says as important. Uh, Her desires, her dreams, even things that upset her, they matter to me. And then the words that I say back to her also reflect our closeness and our intimacy as husband and wife. So words are central to what it means for us to remain in Jesus and it reflects the intimacy and closeness of our relationship with him. Our whole relationship is driven by his words to us and that's why we can never leave God's word because it's that word that shows us how to worship him in the way he wants and not just the way we want. It lets God define our theology as he gives it to us. And it prevents us from wandering off into all sorts of wrong ways of worship and wrong theology, wrong thoughts about God that are based on feelings or our own desires rather than the truth as God gives it to us. So practically, what does it mean to remain in God's word? Well, first and foremost, every Christian, each and every one of us, ought to be feeding ourselves each day on God's word. That should be a minimum, a minimum requirement for us growing in our relationship with God. Personal Bible reading. And the best way to do that, in my view, is to read decent-sized chunks of the Bible every day and to read it in a systematic way. Um, that way, uh, you, you work through the Bible in a systematic way and you get to see how the big picture of the Bible fits together. You get to see God's unfolding story of salvation in a way that it makes sense. You get to understand the way Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament and, and you get to make sense of Jesus' words that much more when you understand the Old Testament background Uh, to his words and besides personal bible reading join a cg a a, um, one of our bible study groups if you haven't already or if you're irregular make yourselves regular because that's crucial for you growing as a believer to meet with other believers uh, to to encourage each other as we read the word and then grab a friend and read the bible one-on-one with them The Bible says that iron sharpens iron. And come to church expecting to hear from God. Um, Don't just come passively. Don't don't just, just come and go through the motions. But expect to hear God through his spirit, through his word. 
These are the words of eternal life. Let them remain in you. So remaining in Jesus is being centred around Jesus' words and we've seen that we then respond to him with our own words of prayer. That expresses our dependence on him for everything that we have and need. Whatever we ask will be given to us. Jesus wants us to pray confidently, boldly, because he's a good God who loves to give good things to his children. Point number three, the fruit of love. So now we move on to our third section, verses 9 to 15. And Jesus explains what it looks like in this section to bear fruit. We bear fruit by loving one another, Jesus says. And the fruit of love comes because God first loved us. Have a look at verse 9 with me. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Right through John's Gospel, we see this, this focus on the, on the love and the relationship the Father has with the Son. And here Jesus tells his disciples that I have loved you in the same way that the Father has loved me. See how there's that correlation? As the Son has community with the Father that shapes and defines our community, our, our interaction, our relationship with the Son. And Jesus says, now remain in my love. Stay connected with my love. Let it dwell in us. Trust in the reality of it. Let it shape us and change us. And then verse 10 tells us how we to remain in his love. Have a look with me. Verse 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. That's how Jesus' love becomes real to us, when we keep his commands. Again, there's a connection with words, you see. Because if his words are his commands, if his words remain in us, they bear fruit in our obedience to those commands. When we step out and love and act in love, it helps us to love more. Let me try to illustrate that with a negative examples. One of my best friends, Steve, uh, used to be a missionary in Turkey. Uh, one day we were talking about um, the politics of the day and uh, it happened to be at a time when Turkey was threatening to bomb Kurdish outposts in northern Syria. Uh, I posed the question to Steve, Steve, why, do, why does the Turkish government hate the Kurds so much? And Steve's answer was quite curious. He said, because they do. And then he explained what he meant. He said, for at least the last hundred years, the, the Turks have hated the Kurds. As they've hated them, that hatred has bred more hatred. And we see the same thing throughout, if you look at the 20th century just as an example, you can pick the example of the Nazis with the Jews, Pol Pot with the Cambodian middle class, and you can pick example after example where the enemy becomes an object to be hated, dehumanised. Hatred produces more hatred. Now, to flip that around, when we love someone, it breeds more love. When I treat my neighbour as a person with 
with dignity made in the image of God, then I begin to see them through God's eyes as someone precious for whom Jesus died. When we keep Jesus' commands and obey his words, we see how his love works. It takes on flesh and blood. Do you see how that works? Maybe you've seen that in your own life when you stepped out to love someone. It makes it easier to love them more. It makes it easier to take that next step of love. And so we are to keep Jesus' commands. And Jesus goes on to make the connection between his commands and love and to show what that love looks like. Have a look in verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. How do we know what love is? We know how to love and we know what love is because Jesus loved us first. And he did that in the greatest possible way. He laid down his life willingly for us. He calls us his friends and he laid down his life willingly by allowing himself to be nailed to a cross. There is no greater expression of love, friends, possible than that. When we want to know how God loves us, that is where we need to turn. When we want definite, irrefutable sign of God's love, friends, we need to turn to the cross. There is no greater expression of love. And it's not just an example of sacrifice, but because Jesus' love bought us forgiveness, our sin is now dealt with by Jesus. And it has enabled us to be no longer enemies, but to be friends with the creator of the universe. And the massive call that Jesus gives us is to love in the same way, to be willing to lay down our lives for each other. Now, there's so much that we could say. We could give an entire sermon easily on just that verse about what it means and how we are to love that way. If, if you were here back in January, you remember that we actually dealt with this, this very um, passage uh, when, we, when we studied um, as part of our Head, Heart and Hand series. So I'm just going to briefly summarise. Um, what I suggested then was that Jesus is challenging us to love without limits. He is challenging us to love without boundaries. To not put on bound to put boundaries on how far we are to be, to willing, how far we are willing to go for others. And we also noted that it wasn't out of duty that we're to love others. It's not a kind of grit your teeth, I must do this sort of love. Because if you look at verse 11 of our passage, Jesus says this, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. When we remain in Jesus' love, when we love the way that Jesus loved us, then his joy 
is complete in us. Our relationship with Jesus and our obedience in love come from the joy that we feel and it leads to more joy. It's the kind of joy that comes from an intimate relationship with friends, which is why what Jesus calls us in verse 15. We obey Jesus' commands not as a servant obeys their master, but as Jesus the Son obeyed his Father. Jesus loves us the same way and we are to respond to him in the same way. And then we come to our, to our fourth point, chosen to bear fruit. We are friends with God because Jesus chose us. And that's our last, last point. Have a look with me in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. Now, I'm imagining that your experience in becoming a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, uh, has been something like, at some point in your life, you made a decision. Uh, you, you made a decision to turn away from your sins and to put your trust in Jesus. That's the experience of most of us. Uh, and it's very legitimate. Um, we actually use our minds uh, and our hearts to come to a point where where we do respond to Jesus. But the language here, Jesus says very clearly that we did not choose him, but he chose us. It's interesting, isn't it? What he's saying is that the choice that really matters, not that our choice doesn't matter, but the overwhelmingly significant choice in this transaction isn't our choice of God, but it's his choice of us. Does that make sense? The choice that actually changes everything, that changes our hearts, that changes our orientation, that changes our whole life, isn't my choice of God, but it's his choice of me. Jesus choosing us. Without, you cho without him choosing you, you would never have given God a second thought. Without him calling you, you would never have turned from your sin. And put your trust in Jesus. You see, the Bible says that yes, yes, our choice matters and the Bible constantly calls us to make a response to God, but it was never really up to us to follow Jesus. That was always him saying, Julie, you're mine. Dong, I'm going to save you. Now, I realise that's really hard for us to get our heads around because we, we, we just can't... Um, we, we find it hard to fathom how does God choose us when cognitively we were very involved with the decision to follow Jesus. But when we do begin to understand it, it's the most wonderful truth because it assures us that what God has done can't be undone. It assures us that God doesn't make mistakes. God doesn't change his mind. If he has chosen you, you can't be unchosen. If our salvation is up to us, then we're in trouble. If it's really me who chooses Jesus, 
then see the, see the burden it puts on me? I might wake up tomorrow and decide that actually I don't really want to be a Christian anymore. I just don't feel like following Jesus. Or if it's up to my performance, I'm equally in trouble. Yeah, I might be all right from 4 o'clock to 5.30 on a Sunday afternoon. Um, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to have it together, aren't I? But Sunday night, I, I might have a row with my wife. Or I might watch something on Netflix which is actually pretty dodgy or, or, or something on the computer which I'm later ashamed of. And then that affects the way I feel about my relationship with God. I'm not really obeying his commands, am I, in the way Jesus tells me to. You see what I mean? Suddenly, from my perspective, my relationship with Jesus becomes shaky if it's up to me. But my relationship with Jesus is secure because it's all about Jesus choosing me. And he chose you if you trust in him. It's not dependent on your performance. It's not dependent on how much you love him. It's not even dependent on how much fruit you bear. Well, the second half of verse 16 does talk about bearing fruit. Let's have a look at it again. Still up there on the screen. Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Now, Jesus isn't saying this is a burden or a guilt trip. He's saying it as an encouragement. See, see he's saying it in the context that, that I chose you, in the context that, that I chose you. The tone is that he's saying, don't worry, you will bear fruit because I chose you to bear fruit. Now, I believe that God's word for each one of us here at SWEC, at Bankstown 4pm today, is that if you remain in Jesus, you will bear fruit. That's why he chose you. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, Marshall, that's all very well for you to say, but um, actually, I haven't got it together. Uh, I'm, I'm no good with people. I, I'm, uh, I, I got nothing to give. Or, uh, or, or perhaps you're thinking, no, that, that's all very well for you to say, Marshall, but you don't know my situation. I'm... I'm weighed down with sin. I'm, I'm so struggling with this sin that there's no way that God can use me. Or that I'm, I'm just so weighed down by depression or worries or sickness. I haven't got the energy to be, to be giving to others. No, no, no. God can't use me. But you know what? When God chose you, he knew all that. When he chose you, he knew your struggles. And he doesn't make mistakes. His plan since before the creation of the world was to choose you and use your unique personality and mix of gifts to use you warts and all to bear the particular fruit that he chose for you, fruit that only you can produce. And God uses your struggles, he uses your trials, he uses your battle for sin, for his glory. 
He uses those things to shape us, to be more compassionate, to be more usable by, uh, to be more sensitive to His Spirit, to be more usable by Him, to mould us to be more dependent on Him. And the wonderful truth that God chooses us also feeds back into how we read the first part of our passage. Jesus tells us to remain in him, as we've seen, but instead of worrying that maybe my faith is too weak, I I can't hold on to Jesus, my hands aren't strong enough, it becomes, we can read those words with confidence because we know that it's Jesus who's holding on to us. Now Jesus does give us some warnings in this passage, in this passage just quickly. Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Then verse 6, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burnt. These are words of warning so we won't be complacent. Jesus says these words so that we don't become overconfident in our ability to hang on to him and so we don't um, try to do that on our own strength. But if your confidence is in Jesus and not in yourself, this passage really is a word of comfort. Jesus chose you. He will not let you go. Oh, you may struggle in your faith you may feel like you're barely holding on. But Jesus doesn't make mistakes. He is holding you with his strong hands. He's holding you with hands that will not let go. And as you remain in him, be confident, be joyful and bear fruit of love because Jesus loved us first. Amen.